So it's a great Sunday to be here because it's always a great Sunday to be here. But we are beginning a brand new teaching series. As you see, First Peter. So if you want to go ahead and find in your Bible, First Peter, or turn on your Bible and get to First Peter, it's going to be near the end. This is a letter written by the Apostle Peter. And the reason I'm so excited about this particular book, and those of you who've been through First Peter before and you know it and you love it, uh, it is astounding how modern First Peter sounds. I felt the same way about Ecclesiastes, honestly, but I'm calling this series Aliens and Strangers. You may have heard that language in the video. It's taken right out of First Peter. And this is why I think that this book could have been written to Christians in 2021. Peter was writing to Christians scattered throughout what is now Asia Minor, uh, what is now like modern day Turkey. And these are Gentile Christians who now that they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, it's weird. They're, they're Roman citizens, some of them. Some of them have been exiles, and, uh, but some of them are, are citizens. But either way, they're under the power of Rome, and it's like, it's weird. Persecution is starting to heat up. There's not full-blown persecution of Christians. This was written around in the 60s AD, say right around 63 AD. There was a Roman emperor coming to power you've heard of named Nero. Nero was a bad dude. Nero was a sociopath. Um, Nero is crazy. This is the, the, the one that set fire to Rome. And while Rome was burning, legend has it, he played the fiddle while his city burned. He needed somebody to blame all his crazy actions on. And so he picked Christians and said, Christians are who set fire to Rome. Christians are the insurrectionists that are, you know, he, he did these crazy things. Blame. You can Google some of the things Nero did to Christians. It is not pretty. We're not there yet exactly, but persecution's starting to heat up. That's why I think this speaks with such a modern voice. You had Christians who lived in a country where like there wasn't full-blown persecution, but they were starting to feel like they weren't really altogether at home there either. I'll try again. You had Christians who full-blown persecution had not happened, but they almost felt like angel, a aliens and strangers, even though they were citizens of their home country. All right, one more time, and if I don't get an amen, we're just going to stay on the introduction forever, all right? So you, you, it'd be easier. Okay, all right. You had a group of Christians who, though they were citizens of a country and full-blown persecution hadn't started yet, they still could not escape the notion that they weren't home yet. They were strangers in a strange land. All right, we can move on. Exactly. So many Christians feel that way in America in 2021. How do you live in an environment like that? And the answer Peter's going to give is this. You got to live like sort of different. You got to be okay with, with being a little bit of a weirdo. You, you, your friends are going to think that you're doing some strange things like, like an alien. You got to be set apart. And the Bible word for set apart is holy. So this whole book is going to be about how to live a holy life. Ecclesiastes is, you know, what to think. This is like a practical discipleship manual. How to live holy living in a hostile world. How do you live holy? But right there we have a problem. In my opinion, we have a problem. And we have one of, I think, the biggest problems when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to Christianity. And here's the problem. Now this is the great thing about one of the many great things. But... Uh, being in the South, you have access to all these sayings. And they're glorious. They're just glorious. Often they get traced back to like farm metaphors and things, but they're great. And we got one right here, and this perfectly describes the problem. And I believe this is 
I think this may be the leading problem in understanding the gospel. This is what keeps people from having that relationship with God. And here's the saying. You ever heard this? You got the cart before the horse. You ever hear that? You're putting the cart before the horse. I think the idea is that it's not going to work because the cart pulls the horse. You got things in the wrong order. You got the cart before the horse. And that, listen, that's the problem. Because people think when you come to church, the message is be holy. People think when you, when you hear the Bible, it's be holy, which they think means live a holy life. And they're right. Live set apart. Do these good things for God. Live a righteous life. Be holy. They hear that and they go, well, I could never do that. I could never live up. I fail too many times. I know myself. I can never do that. And see, that's the problem. You know, I try to get close to God. I want to have a relationship with God, but I can never be holy. No, 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 no. You've got the cart before the horse. So many people think I've got to clean my life up and I've got to quit doing all these bad habits and I've got to get out of this group of people. And if I can just, just pull my head above the sin waters long enough, if I can just be holy long enough, then God will accept me. That's the cart before the horse. You don't clean your life up and then go to God. You just go to God and he'll clean your life up. That is the essential difference between man-made religion and the good news of the gospel. Man-made religion is, says, do enough good deeds, whatever you call those good deeds, clean yourself up enough and you just maybe can get to God. The good news of the gospel is God has come in Jesus Christ and he's looking for you. And he loves you. And he's ready to clean you up. And he'll take care of your life. You can't live a holy life until you're born again. No wonder you feel hopeless. But it's, I get why it's confusing. Because when you come to church, you do hear messages with commands in them. Things like be holy and live a holy life. And that, sure enough, that's in First Peter. In fact, look, but it's not verse 1. It's verse 13. Look at verse 13. I'll show you. After 12 verses, these are the first commands you get in First Peter. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. You see that? Be obedient. Do not be conformed. Ah, see, there's those commands I'm talking about. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's what most people expect when they come to the Bible and they come to preaching, and that's what they expect to hear, you know, be holy. And sure enough, that's in there. But they fail to realize that command is given to born-again believers. He's not saying to the world, why don't you act more holy? The world acts like the world. He's saying this to those who've been radically saved, to those who've been touched by God, to those who've been born again. Now, here's how to walk in that newness of life. Be holy. Holiness, and I think some of our thinking about holiness is not good. We think of self-righteousness or being holier than thou. The Bible knows nothing of these concepts. Holiness just means being set apart, consecrated to God, and thus separated from sin. And who wouldn't want that? Holiness being set apart. Who wouldn't want to be consecrated to God and separated from sin? God saved you from a life of sin. If you think sin is the fun things that mean old God won't let you do, no wonder you don't want holiness. But if you realize, you live long enough, you realize sin is the cancer that was eating you apart spiritually from the inside. Sin is the prison that had you locked up. 
then you are longing for holiness. Then you realize what a gift it is. And, and, and if God's going to save you and make you holy, he's going to save you and make you holy. Why would a loving God save you halfway? I mean, what's his, <laughs> oh Lord, I've lived too long in sin. Please make me slightly less wicked. He wants more. God's a loving father. He wants more than a kid that's slightly less wicked. Parents, are your goals for your kid to flourish or to not be a terrorist? Don't, don't answer that. I know. Some days, I know. I, no, you've got standard, you because you love them. So God wants holiness, holiness. And people say, well, but I can't do that. I can't get there. And that's the thing. That's what's tricky. Cart before the horse. Holiness. It's not something that you have to sort of, oh, if I muster up enough, enough, enough strength and enough willpower, maybe I can be holy. No, no, no. That's not where Peter starts. And we're going to go back and look at these first verses in Peter. But I believe holiness, and I believe this is the message of 1 Peter chapter 1. Holy living actually comes as an overflow. Holiness, I'll say it this way, holiness is a byproduct of something else. Hope. Holiness is a byproduct of hope. That's the message of 1 Peter chapter 1. That holiness comes as a byproduct of hope. And the problem, if, you, if, you're, if you're here and you're going, I've been struggling with holiness. I don't, I don't live a very holy life. I don't, I don't have a close connection to God. Other people seem to have a close connection to God. And I look at other families and they've got it all together. And I'm, I'm falling apart and nobody knows. And I, I, I'm just backsliding and things. It could be that where you need to look is not where you're looking. You're saying, well, I've got to figure out this holiness thing. I think you've got to figure out the hope thing. See, I think the problem's not with your engine. It's with your gas tank, your hope tank is empty. Does that make sense? Uh, I learned all about empty gas tanks uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, uh, I had these plastic trash bags. I was trying to, nah, nah. But, but I pulled up to get gas. Like I, I mean, you know, I, had, I didn't have any gas. I, wasn't, I, I And I pull up, and as I pull up, lady comes out, and she's like, there's no gas, no gas. And I was like, oh, that's odd. I'll go to the next gas station. There's no gas. And the lady looks at me like I'm crazy, and I'm looking at her. I'm like, what do you mean there's no gas? She's like, you haven't been watching the news, have you? I'm like, I never do. That's why I'm perpetually happy. Like, why would I watch this? I don't understand. So I go back and realize, oh, okay, should have got gas. So then I get the trash back. The point is, my gas tank was empty. It doesn't matter. The car won't run. The holiness in your life won't happen if your hope tank is empty. That's what 1 Peter 1. So I've got these two concepts, and I, it's really about the hope. It's, it's manifesting itself. If you have no hope, you're going to live an unholy life. If you are filled with this living hope, it's going to lead to holy living in a hostile world. So what empties your hope tank as a Christian? Or as, just as anybody, what empties your hope tank? Well, I'm going to give you three, and I'm calling them. I hope you like this. I, I think there are three things out there that I'm calling hope busters. Hope busters, things that, 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 that cause an emptying of the hope tank, and we'll look at one, each one. That'll be the sermon. The three hope busters form the three points, and we'll look at what First Peter says about each one. First one, hope buster number one, if you're a note taker. Hope buster number one, I got the idea from myth busters. I love that, where they take these perpetual myths and they bust them. So here we go. These are hope busters. Number one, feeling unworthy. Feeling unworthy. This one is so common, and I see it all the time. People walking around in insecurity under condemnation and accusation. It spills out into our minds as lies we believe. Stuff like this, I cannot be holy. 
Holiness is for other people. I, I can never have that connection with God. You say, why not? Well, preacher, you don't know about my past. I got things in my past that haunt me. And every now and then somebody will be honest. No, it's things in my present. Uh, <laughs> here's what Peter has to say about all this. Go back to verses one and two. Look at this. These are breathtaking. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. When you understand who these people are, you will realize what a breathtaking thing it is for Peter to say you are elect exiles. Look at that word, elect. I already talked about exiles. They feel like strangers in a strange land, but they're not just exiles. They are elect. Some of your translations have the word chosen. He calls these Gentiles spread out through Asia Minor who have now received Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, been born again. They are chosen. They are the chosen exile. They're the chosen of God. Why is that breathtaking? Who wrote this? Of all people to say that. See, the apostle Peter was many things. But one of the, we know if he was saved, he was a sinner. Because that's, that's, that's the only thing God saves is sinners. You know that, right? Every born again believer is just a, uh, repentant uh, sinner. Uh, God saved them. That's why when people are like, I'm too sinful. I'm like, well, good. <laughs> Being a sinner does not disqualify you from following Jesus. It's a prerequisite. One of the sins Peter struggled with, in fact, we know that he struggled with this his whole ministry, his whole life. It's part of his sanctification to get over. One of the sins Peter struggled with, he was a racist. Right? Remember, Paul had to call him out at one point on it. And what, for him, how were races divided? Uh, for Peter, he was a racist in this way. There were two races in the world, according to Peter's background. There were the chosen people of God, Israel, ethnic Jews. And there were these pagan Gentiles. And Peter would grow up and he would tell his kids, don't you ever play with those pagan Gentiles. Don't you eat with those pagan Gentiles. No, 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 no. we're the chosen people. It's us and these they're not worth our time. Here's what the gospel did in Peter's life. The gospel comes to Peter. He follows Jesus. He sees Jesus crucified. You know his ups and downs. You know he denied him. Then he saw uh, uh, Jesus risen from the dead. Power came from on high at Pentecost, and he preached with power. And then he sees this vision where these unclean foods, I mean, he had never eaten with these Gentiles. He didn't know that they could be, and he's starting to piece all this together, and little by little it builds. And then he goes to a house of a Roman named Cornelius, who's a Gentile. And, and the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and Peter's mind is blown and he realizes what the gospel did. It broke down that dividing wall of hostility and he realizes, wait a minute, it's not ethnic Jew versus ethnic Gentile. It's that God has chosen his people in Jesus Christ. Even you, Gentiles, are the elect of God. Chosen. So to put it in modern day terms, for those of you who grew up in church and you got all the spiritual pedigree for those of you who you were in Sunday school, you were in church nine months before you were born. Your mama had you here. You know what I'm talking about? And for those who are the prodigals, who feel so backslidden, who don't, they don't even want to darken the doors, and you somehow made it here, and it took a great act of courage, the gospel's for, yes, all of you, chosen. Yeah, but maybe Peter could think, yeah, but maybe Gentiles were like an afterthought. You know what I mean? Like, we all have like a backup plan. Maybe that's how it was. Maybe God was going to work strictly with the Jewish people to, to work salvation through them. But because many of the Jews, not all, his buddy Paul's case in point, right? 
So, but there are many Jews that rejected the Messiah. And so God scratched his head and was like, oh, plan B, I'll let some Gentiles come in on a provisional basis um, because the whole thing with, the, with my original plan didn't work out. No, look what he says. No, no, no. No, this wasn't a last minute afterthought according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So he's saying this was the plan all along, even you. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling of the blood, you see the Trinity in that verse, foreknowledge of God, sanctification of the Spirit, the Son Jesus Christ. He's saying these Gentile Christians are God's chosen people. He's known them from all eternity. Your inclusion in the people of God is no accident, no afterthought. It's God's purpose from the beginning. This thing about sanctification of the Spirit, I go back to Pentecost. It blew Peter's mind that the Holy Spirit could fill Gentiles, not just Jews. And his mind was opening up to realizing that when Christ stretched out his arms on that cross, it was for all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. Jesus said, whosoever will may come. For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. What do you make of that? That's an interesting um, way to put that. The sprinkling of the blood is obviously Old Testament sacrificial system. Here's the thing. They would sprinkle the altar with blood all the time in the Old Testament. That was very, very common. But that's not what it says. It says the people sprinkle with blood. You sprinkling with his blood. You were, you were uh, for this reason, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The people in the Old Testament only got sprinkled with the blood Three times. There's only three Old Testament references where people got sprinkled with the blood. The first was at Sinai in the uh, installation of the Old Covenant, right? The giving of the law, the people were sprinkled with the blood as a way to come under the Old Covenant. And I wonder if maybe here he's thinking now, you've been sprinkled not with the the blood of uh, bulls and goats and lambs, you've been sprinkled with the precious blood of Jesus Christ symbolically under the New Covenant, could be. The second time the Old Testament uh, it was used was when um, Aaron and the priests were ordained to the priesthood. They were sprinkled with blood. And it's none other than 1 Peter that calls all Christians his royal priesthood. So maybe he's thinking of that, ordained every member of minister, that kind of thing. But I think it's this third thing. There's a third time in the Old Testament where people were sprinkled with blood. And that was to mark the ritual cleansing of someone with leprosy. When a leper was deemed clean, they would be sprinkled with the blood. And think about what it meant to be a leper back then. You were, you know, this contagious disease, so you were cut off from the family of God, cut off from the community. In fact, you had to live alone and shout, unclean, unclean, anytime you came in community until you were sprinkled with that precious blood. And that symbolized to everyone you were welcome back into the family. Listen, let me talk to you. For those of you who've kind of fallen away, maybe you're watching this online, you're so ashamed and you feel like I'm, I'm, not, I'm not connected anymore. I'm backslidden. And you feel like if you walk through the doors of this church, you would have to yell, unclean, unclean. That's how you feel. You're walking under so much accusation and condemnation. You know the, most, you know the thing you may need to do is spend some time this afternoon with 1 Peter 1, 2, and 3. You have underestimated what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Why? Because of what you did? No, sprinkling with his blood. And he's saying, welcome back to the family. You don't have to be that leper anymore. You don't have to yell, unclean, unclean anymore. You're welcome in the family of God because of his great sacrifice. Never underestimate. That's all I'm trying to get you to see. Never, for, everyone, for anyone who struggles with feeling unloved, unworthy, or unlovable, 
for anyone who ever feels the, the pain of not being chosen, never underestimate the miracle of being born again. Of the love of God seeking you and finding you when you were lost and helpless and hopeless, never get over that. Some of you, never get over that. Never get over God choosing you. Because some of you have never gotten over the feeling of not being chosen. Haven't you? Come on, hasn't everybody in here know that feeling when you played, uh, played sports, pick up sports as a kid? What would they do? They'd go, hey, line up, we need to pick up, we need to choose up teams. We need to choose up teams. And they'd get two captains, and you'd stand there. Some of you, <laughs> some of you were really athletic. And you look back on that moment so fondly, the choosing of teams, because you were always picked for, you were so athletic. Others of you, this is why you are in counseling to this day. That moment, okay? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? You, I mean, they would choose, and you're the, they, they would, some, you'd watch somebody else go, and you'd watch somebody else go, and finally, finally, it would get down to you and the trash can, and they had to think about it. And after much deliberation, they'd be like, fine, you know? Now, I was never very good at sports, but I'm very tall. So I would just play with people that never seen me play before. And they'd be like, first pick. They'd be like, no, all right, we'll take the big guy. I'm like, joke's on you. I'm terrible. You know? But they didn't know. They said I made up for my lack of athleticism with zeal. So I thought they didn't have to say that. My counselor says I'm making progress. Here's the point. Uh, I, uh, I guess you could say I was chosen for the pickup basketball team, maybe because of height or whatever. But why were you chosen for God's team? God didn't choose you because of anything you brought to the table. He chose you for his family for one reason. Out of his great mercy. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to your ability as a Christian. No, 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 no. According to your really trying to do better this time. No, 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 no. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Y'all, there are like 10 sermons in that one verse. And I will now attempt to preach them all. Sorry, can't resist. I won't. But you see, there's so much going on there, right? The, the born again is always connected to living hope. Living hope is always connected to the resurrection. You don't have a living hope that's like, oh, I hope for this or I hope for that. No, you have a living hope. His name is Jesus. See, it's his resurrection that gives us that living hope. He caused you to be born again. Let's just talk about born again for a second. Some people think born again is like a particular category of Christian, right? There's regular Christians, then there's born again Christians. No, 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 no. There's no such thing. All Christians are born again. That's what it means to become a believer. It's the phrase Jesus uses in John 3 to describe, describe the complete transformation that God has worked in a person's life. Never underestimate the miracle of being born again. Again, in his great mercy. The new birth means new everything. It means a new nature. You don't, you don't naturally, instinctively go to the things your old nature went to. It means new appetites. You don't crave the things that you used to crave before you were saved. And, and you, you have new capacities. You're able to do things that you weren't able to do because you have the power of the Holy Spirit. And for those that were saved at a very young age, I'd put it this way. You have, you'd say, well, I don't, I don't remember what appetites I had. I was saved at a young age. I mean, what, I didn't do a bunch of wild living. I was, I was saved at eight or nine or whatever. Then you have different appetites than the ones you would have had had God not saved you. Imagine where you'd be. 
See how different that is? What about that person? This is very common. What about somebody that would say, I mean, if I asked you point blank, have you been born again? There's no more important question than that. Have you been born again? What if you said to me, well, preacher, I'll be honest. I, uh, I, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this. Uh, I can't remember the exact like time or date or location that I was like saved. I mean, there's some spiritual markers in my life, but what if I, I mean, because you heard, I mean, you've heard testimony. Some people know, they know the exact moment. Like I was at a Billy Graham crusade and boom, right then I was living this crazy life and like the prodigal son coming home, my life was changed. I was never the same. Boom, after that it was, and I wrote the date down in my Bible. And then some people are like, I wrote the time, you know? Like, I wrote the second, you know, like what if I don't know that exact moment? Well, if you say that, if you'd say, I, you know, I'm, I'm living faithfully I'm, I'm not perfect but i'm trying to live for jesus christ he's in my heart i, I love him but I, I i cannot recollect the exact time or place that i was saved well if you said that i would say to you well come to think of it i don't recollect much about my physical birth but apparently i was there And I don't really think I contributed a whole lot to that process. <laughs> I had to laugh. It just struck me, this guy that was uh, stressing out. I think we were going on a mission trip or something. Stressing out because he couldn't find his birth certificate. So he called me in a panic. I can't find my birth certificate. I was like, relax, bro. It happened. <laughs> like, I know. Why? Well, you'd say, Tom, the evidence that I was born physically is that I'm alive. So the evidence that you've been born physically is that you're alive, and you would say you didn't do much to contribute to that. Well, the evidence that you've been born again spiritually is that you're living this new life. You have new appetites, and, and you didn't have much to do with that. And so when that happens and the question arises, why me? Why me? Why? why, why? Why, when so many of my friends reject Jesus Christ, why did I receive him? When so many people are not touched by the love of God and they reject the gospel, why me? Why was I chosen for your team? Why me? You will never answer that question apart from these words and only these words. Why me? According to his great mercy. period. Now, that business about living hope, that's, uh, that's not just more positive outlook. That's not just helpful self-talk. That may be good psychology. That may actually be. That may help you. But it's not Christianity. The hope is Jesus. He broke the power of death. So positive thinking and being a more optimistic, hopeful person, that's fine. That's good. That may get you a lot of success in this life. But if all that success ends up in the grave, then in the end, there's only one hope that really matters, and that's the living hope. That dead Nazarene Jew named Jesus got up and walked out of a grave. And if he did that, he broke the power of death so that death now cannot hold you, cannot hold, neither, neither can Satan or hell or any other created thing. So if you've been born again uh, and you're struggling with feeling unworthy, again, the best medicine for your soul might be you need to fill up your hope tank and just sometimes if, you have, if, you have, if you've been empty for a while, you know, you notice it takes a long time at the gas pump to fill up. You may need to spend a couple hours with 1 Peter 1, 2, and 3 this afternoon and let that hope tank fill up. Maybe it's not feelings of unworthy. We've got two more. I'll move more quickly through these. But 
uh, I'll call this hope buster number two. Maybe it's not so much I'm unworthy, but I'm calling this like, but like, can I make it? In other words, uh, there are people that say, look, I don't doubt God so much, but like, I don't know if I can persevere. I don't know if I can hold on. What, what if this is just a passing phase? What if, uh, what if I'm, I'm religious now, but I won't, I don't, I won't like persevere to the end? Well, Peter has something to say about that in verses four and five. God is holding two things safe in verses four and five. First, he's holding your inheritance. And second, he's holding you. He's saving your inheritance for you, and he's saving you for your inheritance. First, your inheritance. Look at verse four. Two, he has, he's, he's caused you to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Some translations say guarded in heaven for you. Because you have been born into uh, your physical family, you guys, some of you may be in a really cool situation. You may be in a physical family that's like a really good family, and they love each other, and it's great, and it's great fellowship, and on, as if all that's not enough, one day, you're gonna get like an inheritance. That's great, lucky you, that, that's cool. Um, and you, and you, you may be looking forward to it, but a lot can happen to that, right? Stock markets come and go, and many things can happen. But if you've been born into God's family, you have an inheritance, the best inheritance there is. In the Old Testament, the word inheritance was most often used of the promised land, Canaan, right? You had a share in the promised land. When he says that he's keeping for you an inheritance, he's talking about your share in the kingdom of heaven. You got a reservation in heaven. You got a glorified, resurrected body waiting for you. And is it gonna be kept safe? Dude, it's, listen, in the, in, promi- in the promised land, the problem with the promised land was if you had a share in the promised land, it could be defiled. It was by human sin. And it could be taken away. It can fade away. It was. They got evicted and they had to go to Babylon. But you've got a share in the new heaven, new earth, which cannot, it's imperishable, undefilable. It, it, it's, it's unfading and it's guarded in heaven. It's safe. You know that like, scary feeling. You ever felt that when uh, like, uh, you're on vacation, you're looking forward to checking into the hotel and your kids are just excited to be out of the minivan and everybody's just a little on edge and you go up there and you check in and the reservation and they take just a little too long to find your reservation and they're scrolling through and they're typing. This is the worst. When they type and they shake their head and you're like, no, 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 please, no, right? And so you spell your name, then you spell it again, then you look around at other people and spell their name, just hoping, you know, you could, all right? That, it's like a pit in your stomach when you find out you've made it all this way on the journey, but the reservation's been lost. Why? Because stuff can happen in the computers and people can make mistakes and it's not safe, even in the cloud. But you have a reservation for all eternity. It's not kept in any computer. And it can never be corrupted by any ransomware virus. It's kept in heaven. God himself. Your reservation is safe and secure. And your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. That doesn't get erased. You understand? He's got you. He's got your inheritance. But, but this is what's great. He not only keeps your inheritance safe, he keeps you safe for your inheritance. Look at verse five. To you, 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 who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be reeled in the last time. You're being guarded. Yes, your resurrection body is safe, but it sure would be a shame if you had this wonderful inheritance waiting at the end of your race, but you weren't able to complete the race to get it. 
And what this is promising is you are going to complete this race. He is going to get you there. He who began a good work in you will complete it. You might, if you phrased it carefully, you might phrase this as once saved, always saved, to which I say amen. And there may be somebody that say, yeah, but what about these people that start out and then they and then they fall off, and then they, you know, what about them? Did they lose their salvation? I would say faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the foundation. It was not real saving faith, and it's revealed because it didn't persevere to the end. You, you see? I shared with my uh, Sunday school class this uh, great illustration. I heard an old country preacher. A little boy was having nightmares about losing the salvation. He had, a little boy, he had received Christ, and uh, was having these nightmares. And so his parents said, go talk to the preacher. And uh, he said, uh, preacher, I'm having these nightmares that Satan's going to get me. and He's going to snatch me away. And he looked at him and he said, young man, you're saved. That means you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The devil can't get through that seal. He said, thank you, preacher. That makes me feel better. But, uh, but just supposing he could get through the seal of the Holy Spirit. He said, son, he can't. I, I, I know, preacher. I know. And I appreciate that. I know. But, but, but supposing he could, what if the devil could get through that? So the preacher backs up and tries again. He says, all right, he can't. Satan can't get through the Holy Spirit. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. He can't touch you. But supposing he could, he can't. But if he could, then uh, uh, you are in the Father's hands. John 10, 28. Jesus said, my Father's given them to me. He's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So if he could get through the seal of the Holy Spirit, which he can't, John 10, 28. It's right there in the Bible. You cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. You're in the Father's hand. He says, oh, th thanks, preacher. That makes me feel better. I, I think. But, but, but supposing he could get me out of the Father's hand. <sighs> He can't. He can't get through the Holy Spirit, seal of the Holy Spirit, and he can't snatch out of the Father's hand. I know, preacher, I know, but, but, uh, but supposing he could. He says, son, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're in the Father's hand, and Satan can't get through any of that. But even if he could, you're covered in the blood of Jesus. Thanks, preacher. That made me feel better. But, uh, but supposing he could, preacher says, don't even ask. <laughs> He says, supposing he could get to, to the blood of Jesus. And the preacher finally loses it and he says, son, he can't get to the seal of the Holy Spirit. He can't get you out of the Father's hand. And if, he if that devil could touch the blood of Jesus, he'd be a saved devil. <laughs> I always love that. That's pretty good theology, actually. If he's got you, he's got you. Let me say it this way. You didn't do anything to earn your salvation. What makes you think you can do anything to keep your salvation? If he's got you, he's got you. Your salvation is guarded by him. It's not your ability to hang on to Jesus. It's his ability to hang on to you. See? Last one. Do you see that, 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 that picture? He's got the inheritance in one nail-scarred hand of Jesus. He's got your inheritance. In the other nail-scarred hand of Jesus, he's got you. And one day in the new heaven and earth, he's going to bring those two things together. Can't wait. All right, last hope buster, <sighs> suffering. And I get it. Remember, the original audience are in the midst of suffering. Uh, stuff like, uh, uh, I imagine it'd be stuff like this. Not full-blown persecution, but like my dad got laid off at his job at the chariot factory because Emperor Nero is starting to tell employees to discriminate against Christians. Stuff like that. A little financial hardship, a little struggle, a little persecution at work for standing up 
proclaiming Jesus Christ? Suffering, and it piles up. And on top of that, we got the kind of suffering everybody faces. Flat tires and sickness, but also serious stuff. Death of loved ones, loneliness. That happens to everybody, but now they're being singled out for persecution because they claim Christ. So what does the word of God say if you're going through the hope buster of suffering? Verse six, in this you rejoice. Now, I I love this. He's saying, look, you've got all this inheritance. It's kept for you. This is a sermon about encouragement and joy, and you rejoice. But the Bible is always real. The Bible is not naive. The Bible freely admits, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The Bible's perfectly realistic. You will suffer. But it says why? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. I love that. Even Peter admits my analogy breaks down. The most precious thing he can think of is gold, but even gold one day will perish may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's this verse mean? Your trials show that your faith is genuine, that you've got the real thing, the genuine article, the real McCoy. If you had something that you you thought maybe, just maybe, was worth something, you had something that had some value to it, you're pretty sure. Your your family's always said it's valuable. Your your great-grandfather gave it to you, and his great-grandfather gave it to him, and you are pretty sure that this is a Ming vase, vase. That sounds more valuable, right? It's a Ming vase. Or you've got this old Rembrandt. Or that violin, it says Stradivarius. Or it sure looks like this is a first edition, right? I mean, could this be? Is this, is this it? You, you, think, you think you're on to something. What do you do? Well, there's two things. One is, if you just want to tell all your friends it's real because you've been told it's real, then you'll just go through life and be like, yeah, it's real. But if you really want to know, you have to go get it tested. And that is the popularity of the TV show Antiques Roadshow. You ever seen this? So people come in with their first edition or their Ming vase or their little, you know, porcelain unicorn or whatever, and they ask, well, and there's this moment, right? The appraiser looks at it, they study, they do a little history, and they come out, and there's a deep breath, and they say, you might want to sit down. This is worth commercial break. Then we go to a commercial break, right? Then when we come back, and you're like, "I, I, I can't believe it. They come back, their life is radically changed because they're told, it's absolutely real. You have, a, you have a $3 million vase on your hand. This, you know, this unicorn was made by Stradivarius. It's crazy. Okay. You know, you, you've got this great thing, right? You know it's right because it's been tested. Colin Smith's one of my favorite preachers. He's outside Chicago. He says, he says, he makes this point. You've got to know if it's being tested. So, so what's the evidence? If you've got something that may, might just be more valuable than a Ming vase, you've got something that's more valuable than a Rembrandt printing, you've got eternal life. You've got the salvation of Jesus Christ. Don't you want to know if it's real? Don't you want to know if you got the genuine article? Oh man, I want to find out now. I want to find out if what I have is not real. I absolutely want to find out before I face eternity so I can get the real deal, right? I've got to know. How do I know it's not a passing phase? How do I know this isn't just a human decision and if I decide one day, I might undecide the next day? How do I know it's going to persevere? And here, First Peter says, there's one way you can know. Trials. Suffering. And when you go through suffering and you go through trials and you face persecution, if you shake your fist at heaven and you say, well, that's it, we're done. I was better off before I knew God. I was better off before all this stuff. I don't need any of this. Then you'll know what you had. 
You didn't have the real thing. Or, or you'll, you'll keep playing the game and you'll keep coming to church, but meanwhile, inwardly, you'll shake your fist and smolder with sort of a low burn, simmering rage and anger toward God your entire life of bitterness. Well, you'll know. Or, and there are people in this very congregation right now. This is their story. Or, you will face unanswered questions the pain of searing loss. You will face incredible suffering. And you will go through hurt, illness, the death of a loved one, or even abuse, violence. And you'll trust him anyway. And you'll believe. Why do you do that? Because your faith is a miracle. Tested by fire. You got the genuine article. That's why. And though you haven't seen him, verse 8, you love him. And you long for the day when you get to see him. You've got faith, and it's real. And there's no better evidence to know if it's real than to be tested by the trials. And when it comes out through the trials, you know you got the real thing. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And that's, it's, you get, that's why it's hard to preach. I mean... <laughs> The Bible literally says this joy is inexpressible, so you'll never be able to express it. Now, try to express it in a sermon. I can't. It's filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets, the, you know, Walker's going to come and lead us in a time of response. I, I just want to point out these last verses. I love this image. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent gl glories. I love this. In other words, he said, imagine Isaiah. What would Isaiah give to be a member at Coleman First Baptist Church in 2021? He'd have given anything. He's saying, do you not know what you have to be a Christian in this day and age? Isaiah is peering on tiptoe into the future, scratching his head going, how is a holy God and humans going to be reconciled? I believe he's going to do it, but I don't know how. And you, every Sunday, get to hear the good news of the gospel on how he did it. Isaiah's like, I'd have given anything. And you think Isaiah would have given anything? It was revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you. They did all this for you, by the way, and the things that have now been announced to you. Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, here it is, you think the prophets wanted to know, things into which angels long to look. There are angels. If I understand the scripture correctly, there are angels right now in heaven who would give up their angelhood to, to have what you have on this Sunday morning. To be able to be a worshiper, a child of God, bought with his spirit, caused to be born again to a living hope. And they're sitting here gazing into this, longing, and they're going, God never sent Jesus to die for an angel. God never became an angel. God, God made us his servants. We're his servants. But look at these humans. They, not just servants. They get to be sons and daughters. Made in his image. What must it be like? Don't you think angels are looking at us going, what must it be like? What must it feel like? To know that you are loved and forgiven by a holy God. The God that we see in all his holiness. If, listen, if you could see what we see, whoo, I'd give anything to have what you have. 
I would long to gaze into that. Now, if angels, who I believe are smarter than us, if angels would say, I'd love to gaze deeply into the glories of the gospel, then how much more do we need to get along with 1 Peter and the whole Bible and gaze intently into what we've been given in the precious gift of the Son, Jesus Christ, for us and our salvation? I hope the invitation is clear. I'm going to pray for us. And with this, we're off and running into 1 Peter. And I hope the invitation is clear. If you've not been born again, why not make today that day? Come, come. When the music starts and the, and the singing, just step out from where you are and come to the altar and meet Pastor Scott. We can set up a time to meet and we can lead you in a simple prayer that'll get you on your journey. We can help you answer some questions maybe. Be born again today. And if you're a believer, I want you to live a holy life this week. Out of hope, out of the overflow of hope, be holy. Let's pray. God, grant to anyone here who is not yet a believer that today would be the day of their salvation. Don't let the hope buster of unworthiness or a lack of uh, a fear that they'll never last and not make it or a hope buster of suffering uh, 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 lie to them this morning. Let the truth of your word put aside all those lies and let them be saved. And Lord, for those that are here that are believers, let today be an encouragement to them, a shot in the arm to fill up their hope tanks that we would live a holy life in a hostile world to the praise and glory of your name, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.